continues this morning. So we're going to be getting back into a series of talks on the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 6. Uh, we're getting back into that series. We've called that series The Church in Action, but we took a pause from it at the end of our life group term, and now we're getting back into it. So I guess whether you're new or not, it's been a few weeks, so you could probably do with a little bit of an update as to what happened in those first five chapters so that we're all on the same page together. So by chapter 6, we're in kind of 31 AD. Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. He's risen. He has both commissioned and empowered his followers to build his church. That's why the series is called The Church in Action, because the first church, we'll call them King's Church Jerusalem, they explode into action. And that's what we've seen in the first five chapters is King's Church Jerusalem, the first church, the prototype church, if you like, exploding into being. They've had an amazing time, haven't they, in those first five chapters, you remember? They've seen incredible healings. They've seen extraordinary miracles. They are renowned for their love for each other and their love for their city. They are uh, growing exponentially. So they were 120 in a room, kind of this kind of size, and they're now 10, 12,000, we think, by the time we arrive in chapter 6. But it's not all been triumph and wonder. They've had some tough times as well. They've been hit by a few storms, King's Church, Jerusalem. Externally, they faced persecution. So their leaders have been arrested, imprisoned, beaten, threatened, and warned not to speak about Jesus anymore. Internally, uh, they've had significant moral failure in the church. This resulted in the death of two people. And we're about to see, that we're about to see they're going to have another internal storm. They're going to face a third storm in this passage. So Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Let's just pause there for a second and ask ourselves, what is going on? So in that culture, widows were an extremely vulnerable demographic. A widow who was without a husband or an extended family was perhaps one of the most vulnerable type of people in that society at that time. Of course, there's no welfare state, there's no childcare, there's virtually no opportunities for women to flourish and prosper in the workplace and gain promotion and that kind of thing. So to be a widow is, ex- is an, an extremely vulnerable position. So what the church have done in Jerusalem, I guess, is a bit like what our friends in Surbiton did, and they've set up a food bank, effectively. The church have got their own food bank going, and they're using that to take care of the widows in their church. And yet... Some of the widows, the Hellenist widows, are being neglected. So at that time in the church, all the Christians are of Jewish origin. They're all Jewish converts to Christianity. So in that sense, they are very similar, but there also are some massive differences. And it's those differences that are being exposed in this particular passage. So the Hebrew Jews would have been Jews that originated from Palestine itself. They would have been, I guess we could use words like conservative and traditional in nature. So they would have spoken Aramaic, they would have worshipped in Hebrew, they would still have had a very close affinity with Jewish temple customs. Whereas the Hellenistic Jews, they were actually more Greek in culture and origin and language. So they were uh, kind of a scattered, the Jewish diaspora from the Mediterranean, that's where they, they uh, heralded from, they spoke Greek, they were Greek in their, in their culture and disposition. So actually they're quite different, the Hebrew and Hellenistic Jews. And for some reason, the Hellenistic Jews are the ones who are somehow being neglected, or their widows are being neglected at the church's food bank. They're not getting the food that they so desperately need. And we're not sure, are we, from this passage, whether it's a prejudice issue along kind of ethnic, cultural lines, or whether it's just an administrative issue because the church has grown so much that their structures can't cope with the need. We're not sure. But either way... 
the church has got a problem. Another one. Another storm has come their way. And I just love how the Bible speaks to us today. I believe that so firmly, that the Bible speaks to our lives and our circumstances today. This is a church that has taken a few storms, that's been hit by a few storms. And I think we, as King's Church Kingston, uh, as many of you know, have taken a few hits of late. And it's just great to see, isn't it, that that is kind of, that's not a surprise to God. The nature of churches is that they have problems. They get the occasional storm that comes along right from the very first one. The very first church experiences a few hits along the way. So I think this is a really relevant passage. Whoever you are this morning, if you're part of King's Church, this is really helpful because it helps us see how a church takes a hit and keeps on growing. That's really helpful for us this morning. You might be visiting us, kind of looking in, saying, is this the church for you? And in my brief experience as a pastor, I've spoken with a lot of Christians who've been burnt in church life, who've seen problems happen in church life, which are inevitable, as I just said, and they've not been handled well, and you've experienced pain and hurt as a result. So this is a really helpful passage for you to see how a church deals with a problem, grows, and flourishes as a result. Maybe you you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You're here because someone invited you. You're exploring this whole Christian thing. And I'm guessing you've probably seen some of the more negative things about church life and culture over your life and looking back over history. Well, why don't we just start with a prototype church? Why don't we strip it back to the very first one and see how they deal with problems and see how they prioritize Jesus as they do so? So, let's get back into the passage. Verse 2, how does the church handle this issue? And the twelve, so that's Jesus' original disciples who now lead the church, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer, and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. You say those words with enough confidence. Everyone just assumes you know what you're saying. (laughs) These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what do we see in this passage? What's the big idea this morning? Well, I've already said that churches hit problems. That's just the nature of things. The first church did, and churches ever since have. But the big idea this morning is that churches keep growing when they grow servant-hearted leaders. Churches keep growing when they grow servant-hearted leaders. Servant-hearted leaders themselves grow in their servant-heartedness and more servant-hearted leaders appear and are raised up. That's the big idea this morning. And to unpack that big idea, I want to look at three things. Number one, a leadership void. And why, why a leadership void is something to be avoided. Secondly, though, why leadership is good. But thirdly, why servant leadership is even better. So the problems with the leadership void, the goodness of good leadership, but the glory and the wonder and the vision of servant leadership. That's what we're going to look at in these next few minutes. So, first of all, leadership void. 
I know some of you have been very grateful to have lots of um, messages of thanks at my recent engagement. Carol and I have been very happy to receive all of those. Uh, he says, shamelessly getting another round of applause. And um, I'm guessing that some of you are thinking, I wonder where this might mean that Philip might start to maybe bring in some variety to his preaching illustrations. Maybe now we'll get uh, a little bit of romance or some wedding illustrations or something like that. Um, so World War II. Uh, <laughs> Um, no, it's not, it's not a bad one for me. Can you put the next slide up, please? Um, I've been watching The Island. Have you, any of you seen The Island? It's on Channel 4. I know it's a bit of a, a running joke in our office at the moment as to who's watching The Island. And I watched this last night. Carol and I watched this last night. And it was the last episode we watched. So if you're not familiar, The Island's a pretty basic concept. Episode 1, bunch of men, stick them on a desert island, watch them suffer, see if they survive. Episode 2, bunch of women, stick them on a desert island, watch them suffer, see if they survive. That's the basic concept, with Bear grills in the background, vaguely mentoring slash laughing at them along the way. <laughs> Now, in the last episode that we watched last night, it is really interesting because the first part of the episode basically summarizes their first five weeks on the island, which have been a disaster, basically. If you've seen it, you'll know it's been disastrous. And so after week five, they've virtually got no food. All they have is coconut. They've been living on that for five weeks. Their shelter is a disaster. They're being eaten day and night by these horrible insects. There are arguments and quarrels in the camp. There's lots and lots of upset and angst. They're having an absolute shocker. And in this, this five-week period, at the end of this five-week period, they get together and say, maybe, some of them say, maybe we need to appoint some leaders in our team. And these two, two girls on, on my right are the two who are saying, maybe we should have some leadership, guys, because we're, we're kind of starving here. Like, it's genuinely hardcore what these girls are going through. But the rest of the team say, no, 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 we don't want leaders. They all, they all say, we don't want leaders, because leaders mean we'll get bossed around, or it might mean that you know, we're going to get kind of told we do, do things we don't want to do. And somebody else says, no, no, we can all rule together by consensus. It'll be like a cooperative. And they reject the idea of any leadership at all. And they continue basically to starve. They have no food, they get no sleep, they're being eaten alive. It's a complete disaster, really, because there's a leadership void. There's no leadership at all at the moment in week five with those girls. And they are not flourishing. They are not flourishing. A leadership void will always result in a lack of human flourishing. And it seems to me there's been a lack of leadership in some ways in the church in Jerusalem. The women in the church in Jerusalem are not being fed, to stretch the analogy a bit further. The widows are not being fed. Now, we need to understand how big a deal this would have been for the church leaders to have realized this or been confronted with this. Remember, these are all Jews by original origin before they became Christians. They know the Old Testament really well. And in the Old Testament, God's heart for the widow is very, very clear, isn't it? If you know your Old Testament, you know that God over and over again talks about the special place that he has in his heart to make sure that the widow is not exploited and is not vulnerable. I can give you example after example that God says things like, she must not be exploited. He says that. God also says in the Old Testament that the widow is to be specifically permitted to glean the fields and vineyards during harvest time. If you know the story of Ruth, you know that's how Ruth gets to survive through that law. God says that there should be special provision for the widow made at every religious feast. This is in the Jewish culture. It's in the Old Testament. And suddenly, these Jewish Christians realize, we're not doing it. 
We're not caring for the widow. The widow's got a special place in God's heart. Jesus, who's just died and risen, he also demonstrated that because he was the perfect image of God. And sure enough, he demonstrated a special care for the widow in that culture. So there must have been something of a leadership void for this problem to have revealed itself, that these widows are not being cared for. Leadership void does not result in human flourishing. It results in the opposite. I'm sure we've all seen that in different arenas of life. But equally, I'm sure we've all seen good leadership causing human flourishing and the positive effects that it has. So back to the island and our friends behind me, they meet a second time, having originally said no leadership, they meet a second time, and they're, they're suffering so much. They're not, it's not too far off from starving, if you've seen the program. They really are having a torrid time. And they say, surely we need somebody to lead us. And eventually, they agree. And the girl in the middle, Lauren, is the appointed as the main leader, and she turns out to be the most outstanding leader. She's 25, and she gets them moving in no time at all. She gets them organized, they repair their fishing nets, they start catching fish so they can eat. She gets them to raise their beds off the ground so the insects don't get them. They get a raft sorted out so they can go and get fresh water more easily. Like literally, within a week or two, these women are beginning to flourish again. She finds the main troublemakers and kind of uh, reconciles with them and brings them into the picture so they get going and they start to flourish. And literally within two weeks, these girls are sleeping, they are eating, they are flourishing, they are laughing and singing together because that girl in the middle led them. It's a really, really interesting picture of how leadership takes place. I'm sure you've all experienced good leaders in your lives, whether it's been in the workplace or the home or, or in church and so on. I used to be a teacher for, um, for nine years or so, and in my first teaching job, I came across probably one of the best leaders that I've ever come across. His name was Ben, and he was appointed deputy head in, uh, in my second year as a teacher. So I thought I knew it all, but actually I knew nothing, as I soon to be made aware of. Uh, and he was so helpful in our school. He was a fantastic leader. And there were loads of reasons I could give you for that, but because he was full of humor, he was full of charm and grace, he was very good at his job, all of those kinds of reasons. But primarily, he had a real passion for making sure that every teacher could be the best teacher they could be. That really seemed to drive him, helping each teacher be the very best they could be, knowing, of course, that when teachers are the best that they can be, children flourish, humans flourish. He was such a good leader. He was inspiring. He was encouraging. He could make tough decisions, but do so with grace and winsomeness and clarity. But something else that made Ben stand out, and I haven't seen him since, I love to tell him these things, was that he was a servant leader. It was quite unique, I think, in that way. He was a servant leader. He wasn't motivated by kind of creating a legacy. Legacies are good. He wasn't motivated by achieving promotion. Promotion is good. He wasn't motivated particularly by kind of increasing the profit margins of the school because it was a fee-paying school, though profits are good. What he seemed to really motivate him was to serve teachers so that teachers could serve children, so that children flourished. I hadn't really kind of worked that out until this week, but Ben was a remarkable leader in that respect. And I don't think servant leadership is something that the world, if you like, is totally unaware of. I came across a, a very famous businessman this week called Max Dupree, should appear behind me. Very successful businessman in America and a Christian. And he says this, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. In between, 
The leader is a servant. That's from a major, major CEO who's made an awful lot of money in America. He's worked out that the real leader is the one that serves rather than the one that pursues prestige, profit, legacy, and so on. Servant leadership is very distinct and very unique. And my point this morning is, as I've already mentioned, is that servant leadership is the really glorious image. It's the real thing that's of God. It's the thing that really causes churches to continue to grow. So in the second half of our time together, what I want to do is look at what we can learn from how these servant leaders in this church servant lead. Because all of you, whether you know it or not, will have areas of leadership in your life. And even as I say that, some of you will be mentally saying, no, I don't. But all of you will have some area of your life where it's up to you to cultivate something. It's up to you to bear fruit in some way. It's up to you to shape something or take some responsibility. So I think we can learn an awful lot from how these leaders go about leading with a servant heart. So three things that we can learn from these servant leaders in the Jerusalem church in Acts. Number one, they are rescuers. They are rescuers. And by that I mean they take their wounded with them. Do you notice that? They're quite blunt, aren't they, about how they speak about their role, and their role is not to care for the widow. But do you notice, they make sure it happens. They take quick, decisive action to make sure the wounded, if you like, the most vulnerable in their church, are cared for and taken with them. Churches are not governed by a Darwinian survival of the fittest mentality, are they? These guys don't say, do you know what? I mean, this, these guys, our church is growing a lot. We've gone from 120 to about 15,000. Like, seriously, widows, what are they going to contribute? Like, seriously, not a lot. I mean, in fact, anything. If anything, they're taking our resources, time, energy, finances. We're on a mission here, guys, to grow this thing, so sorry, survival of the... F-. That's not what they say. They make sure that their wounded come with them. Servant leaders know they've been served spectacularly by the grace and compassion of Jesus. And so they look for opportunities to demonstrate the same grace and compassion of Jesus to those that they lead. These guys prioritize teaching a gospel of grace, but they also live a gospel of grace. The man behind me, his name is Lance Corporal Adam Jackson. He's 22 at the time of that photo. Lance Corporal in the 1st Battalion, the Royal Welsh. He was serving in Afghanistan a few years ago, uh, and his patrol of 14 men was uh, ambushed by a uh, set of insurgents using small arms and grenades, and one of their 14 was really badly injured, so stricken and lying on the ground. The rest of the men returned fire and tried to hide the stricken comrade by smoke grenades and covering fire and so on. But Lance Corporal Jackson decided to do a bit more. He decided to sprint across open ground in front of bullet fire, ushered away one vulnerable civilian to get to his uh, colleague. And he said this, because of my position, this is this guy talking, there was no one else who could have got him out of there but me. And so the, the smoke continues to be around, the bullets are flying, these insurgents are very keen to take out the wounded soldier as well as all of those around him. You can imagine like bullets fizzing around, the noise is deafening, the fear is excruciating. But then, 
Lance Corporal Jackson, I'm told in the military report, manages to drag a 130-kilogram soldier, because of all his kit, dragged him out of the way, into safety, called in a uh, support defence from the British Army, and that soldier was treated and rescued. And when asked, why did you do that? This is what he said. The only way I can describe why I did it is this. If it was someone in your family who got hurt, you would go out of your way to stop that happening and help them. The only way I could do it was going out there to get him. Very simplistic approach, but remarkable in the sense that for him, the army was a family. For us, the church is a family. Servant leaders in the family of God take their wounded with them. Not asking, what will you contribute? But asking, how can I serve you? How can I rescue you? How can I help you get back on your feet? Not stay wounded. Get back on your feet. Be healed, restored, ready to play your full part. Servant leaders rescue and they take their wounded with them. Ever so keen for God to bless us with growth, just like the church in Jerusalem. And we're ever so keen to take our wounded with us all of the time. So that wounded people become a healed, restored people in Jesus and flourish. Secondly, servant leaders don't just rescue, they retain focus. They retain focus. Do you notice how these guys refuse to be distracted from their primary goal? Very, very bluntly, verse 2. I'm probably Peter, I imagine, is my guess. He's the one that said this. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Peter's not saying that the care of the widows is of less value. It's not what he's saying. We've just explained, haven't we, how he's made absolutely sure that the widows are cared for. But what he is saying is, or the disciples, I should say, what the disciples are saying is, we met and were commissioned by the risen servant leader himself, Jesus. And he told us to prioritize serving the church primarily by teaching and preaching his gospel. So we're going to stick to that. We're going to stick to praying to Jesus, studying Jesus, and preaching Jesus. They retain their focus at the same time as rescuing the wounded and the vulnerable. Now, these guys are apostles. So they met and were with the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. Some of them wrote Bible. So they were in a whole different category called capital A Apostle. But they are also leading a local church. They're leading a church in Jerusalem. And so therefore they're setting an example for pastors and those that would lead local churches. And the example they're setting is that the priority of a pastor is not to answer every email, care for every single person who's in need, and respond to every building issue. What they are saying is that the priority of a pastor or pastors is to give himself to prayer, study, planning, and teaching the Bible. Thirdly, so servant leaders rescue, they retain focus, and they also, and they also raise servant leaders. I should have prefaced that last point by saying, at this point, you might be saying, okay, fine, so I see how the church should operate and how the leaders and the pastors should get on and doing it. I get that, Philip. Servant-hearted leadership sounds good, even better than, than good leadership, and the church will flourish, but 
what about me? Why don't you get on and do your thing with your team and you lead? But don't miss what these servant-hearted leaders do. They raise more. They raise more servant-hearted leaders. There's an American guy, who, number of time, number, a politician, who a number of times went for uh, presidential candidature. His name is Ralph Nader. And he said this, I start with the premise that the function of leadership is to produce more leaders, not more followers. And it seems to me that the leaders of the church in Jerusalem understood this 2,000 years earlier. They're not protective or controlling. They really want each person in their church to flourish. They want their city to be impacted and the gospel of Jesus to be prioritized and taught. They're servant-hearted leaders. And they realize there are loads of people in our church who are much better at this. We're not very good at caring for the widows. Here's the, here's the evidence. Servant-hearted leaders realize there are people in their church who are much better at other areas of ministry and they raise them up to do so. Do you see that? So I recently, I guess I became a full-time pastor recently, but I've never used the phrase that I've heard others use. I've entered full-time ministry. That's never been a phrase that I've used. When I read the Bible, I see that a Christian is somebody in ministry. If you're a Christian, you're in ministry. When you become a Christian, you say, Jesus is my Lord. He's my king. He's the one that rose from, from death to life to conquer and bring in victory. It's his kingdom that is the one that is expanding. I follow him. I'm on his team. It's a privilege to serve him and enjoy him. He's given me a place and a role and a, a, a position in the team. That's what happens to every single Christian. They may not know it. That's what happens to you when you become a Christian. You become, you get given a ministry. So when I was a teacher, I was a Christian with a ministry. And now I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian with a ministry. Different ones, and they outwork themselves in different ways. But every Christian has a ministry and ministries. The New Testament clearly shows that. Every Christian has a ministry for, the, for their flourishing, because you get to do what you're good at doing and made to do. For the good of the church, the body of Christ, every part playing its part. For the reaching of the community and primarily for God's glory. I really want to see every person in King's Church being a, a G, having a ministry for Jesus. And knowing that's the case. And knowing what it is and what the current expression of it is. Not that you've got a job description, but there's something beating in your heart. I know what God made me to do. You ever seen Chariots of Fire? Eric Little? He was a missionary. Great full-time ministry. Before that, he was a runner with a great full-time ministry. And he said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Because he's doing what God made him to do. And all kinds of opportunities arose for him to give God lots of glory. Eric Little, full-time Christian ministry as an athlete. Eric Little, full-time Christian ministry as a missionary in China. Both times. Both times knowing I'm doing what God's made me to do. Running, winning, beating people. I kind of feel that a bit. <laughs> and proclaiming Jesus' gospel. Interesting to me, in this passage, it talks about the ministry of preaching the word and serving tables. And when I first read it, did you feel a bit kind of, ooh, ouch, the way the disciples speak? We are called to the ministry of the word. Oh, we're not going to be serving tables. Is that how it felt a little bit? But interestingly, the actual Greek word, because this is written in Greek originally, the Greek word is almost identical for both. Diakonia is the kind of root word for both serving and ministry. So the author, Luke, who wrote this, is saying, 
kind of the same thing. Ministry, service, they're interchangeable words. There's the ministry of, spe- of preaching. There's the ministry of serving the poor. That's what Luke actually is saying. Not that there's some kind of hierarchy of ministry. And if we can just about find some people to look after the widows, I said, that's not what he's saying at all. Servant-hearted leaders understand what they are to retain focus on and help others to understand what they are to retain focus on. And I guess this is really pertinent for us as a church, as I'll come to and close with in a second. But it must be pertinent for every aspect of our life. I'm at the beginning. You've all got some responsibility, some area of the home, of the community, of the workplace, where you are called to... to bear fruit, to cultivate, to grow something, to take responsibility for something, to see something grow and flourish, to see some people grow and flourish. Might be your boss, might be your employees, might be your colleagues, might be your children, might be your wife, might be the person that you, you play sport with, the person that you meet up with, the person you have a, somebody, something in your life will be there for you to cultivate, to lead by serving. What is that in the workplace? What does it look like for you in the workplace this week to be a servant leader? So that means somebody who retains focus on what you're called to do, make sure the wounded come with you on the same mission, and somebody maybe who gets others flourishing and leading. What about in the home? What about in the community? What does it mean to be a servant leader in the areas of responsibility you have? I only got this really at the end of my teaching career, sadly. And he started to dawn on me, I've got a ministry here. So I used to ask myself questions like these that you may want to ask this week. What can I do in these settings to demonstrate something of Jesus? So for me, that would be in the classroom. Grace, patience, forgiveness. It might have been in a difficult meeting with a demanding parent. It might have been in a strategy meeting with leaders. What could I do in each setting to bring something of the nature of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the patience of Jesus, the justice of Jesus? But obviously, we're also called, as I've already said, to be servant leaders in the church. We want to be a church full of servant leaders. We're praying together at 10 to 10. Many people in the church have been here since 8, half 8, People servant leading with the children right now. People servant leading with worship. People servant leading, making sure you can all hear me. The list goes on and on and on. There are lots of wonderful servant leaders in this church, in this setting, in other settings. But if we're going to be like the church in Jerusalem that can take a hit and keep on growing, we need more. More servant leaders, more men and women cultivating an area of responsibility, causing human beings to flourish into the likeness of God and God to get loads of glory. So we'd love to be appointing more elders in the church towards the end of the year for the governance and headship of the church. But we want lots of people, lots of men and women cultivating, leading and shaping in the church. How do you do that, you might say? Let me just close by bringing some practical things and then pointing it towards the ultimate servant leader. I'll try and wrap up. Just a practical thing, becoming a member. So in King's Church, we are happy for people who aren't even Christians. There are areas that you can serve. We'd love you to come and help us set things up, maybe. And if you are a Christian, there are loads of places that you can serve. But in terms of leading something, shaping something, we need you to be a member. We need, you, we need to know that you are in both feet with the vision and values of the church, that you know that we're not perfect. Really important that you know that. 
but that you are in both feet so that you can get on taking responsibility, leading and shaping. So exploring church membership on the 5th of July. If you're not yet a member, you want to find out more about it, or you've been thinking about it for a long time, I know some of you have, come to that meeting, hear more about what it means, and get both feet in with the, the vision and the values of the church. Email office at kingschurch.com, we can put you in, and it could start that process. We need members of the church who are in both feet, who've got areas of responsibility to lead and shape and cultivate and help us to be able to grow. Secondly, if you want to be a servant leader in this church, aspire to the attributes of these servant leaders that were raised up. Yes, they were men in this particular instance, but you look at the sweep of Scripture and the pattern of the New Testament, men and women are called to shape, to take responsibility, to cultivate, to bear fruit, to come into the fullness of their gifting and their talents. Look at the attributes of these guys. Verse 2, good repute, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Verse 5, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. You want to become a servant leader. The wonderful thing is God gives those things. Maybe not good repute so much, but God gives his spirit inside us. The spirit gives us more and more faith. And the Bible tells me that I can ask God for more wisdom. So isn't that amazing? God wants you to become a servant leader and he wants you to help you to be able to do so by giving you increasing faith, by giving you increasing measure of his spirit, by giving you increasing wisdom from heaven, the Bible promises when we ask it. Next thing, consider carefully what you're good at. Consider carefully what you're good at. What do you enjoy doing? Like Eric Little, what did God build you to do? What do you feel is pleasure when you do well? For me, it's partly to do with this stuff. For most of you, it's not. But thank goodness this morning is happening because loads of people are being skillful at other things. Otherwise, all we would have, literally, would be a bloke with a Bible at the front. Nothing, literally nothing else. Maybe some food, maybe. I might be able to bring that. So consider carefully what you're good at. Life group leadership. We have amazing life group leaders. Men, women, couples, singles, who are leading and cultivating and shepherding a group of 8, 10, 12 people. It's an amazing job that they do. If we're going to grow, we need more life group leaders to accommodate growth. The, the, the qualification, as far as I'm concerned, for being a life group leader is this. You love Jesus and you love people. And you want to grow in love for Jesus and grow in love for people. Those are the qualifications. We'll train you. We'll bring you into our training settings. We'll give you handbooks and advice. We'll pray with you. We'll walk alongside you. We'll help you get better and better and better. We need more and more men and women who will step up, get trained, love Jesus, love people, and shepherd a group of 8, 10, 12, 14 people to be more like Jesus. There are very few higher callings on this planet. That's you, life group leaders, by the way. And finally, when you become a servant leader or you grow in servant leadership, only do so by considering the ultimate servant leader. I'll say that again. Only do so by considering the ultimate servant leader. Jesus, who rescued the wounded, who paid special attention to the marginalized, who went out of his way to find the leper, to find the widow, to find the prostitutes. Jesus, who retained his focus fiercely. I will do what the Father has called me to do and glorify him. He retained his focus. He would leave adoring crowds to go and spend time with the Father, retaining focus. Thirdly, 
the servant leader, Jesus, who raised other leaders. People who everybody else would have disqualified. Uneducated fishermen. And Jesus raised them up to build his church and see it explode across Europe. Consider the ultimate servant leader. Jesus who left the glory and perfection of heaven. Who left, left it behind, the glory and perfection of heaven. What was that like? I don't know. Father, Son, Spirit in eternal perfection. And he left it behind to be born into poverty, ignominy, scandal, anonymity. Jesus, who unlike so many leaders, didn't come to be served. Mark 10 tells us he came to serve. And isn't it great that these guys who are giving us the template, the leaders of Jerusalem, they knew him. They were with him, prayed with him, wept with him, got taught by him. They were commissioned by him. Remember that famous scene? Last Supper. Jesus commissions them to be servant leaders and then shows them exactly how to do so by washing their feet, deliberately, strategically, taking the lowest possible servant job and doing it to those disciples and then saying, this is how you lead. Look for people's feet to wash. Amazing commission that he gave them. And then you watch him move from that last supper room in the final 15 hours of his life and go to the Garden of Gethsemane, determined to serve humanity. Going to false trial after mock trial, determined to serve humanity, including the ones who were accusing him, spitting on him, scourging him. Going through a beating that would have killed most men, determined to serve humanity, all the way to the cross. And you look at the cross, this is what you see. God serving humanity. And when he does that, what happens? Jesus serving humanity on the cross. What does that mean? He leads humanity into the presence of God, into the family of God. You see that happening? On the cross, God is serving humanity, leading them into forgiveness, into adoption of sons and daughters, into eternal life. The ultimate servant leader. Can I ask the band to come and join me? Just as you're considering how you want to respond we're going to be sharing communion together, second time we've done that in this room, which is a wonderful way of responding to the ultimate servant leader. I don't know what God has been speaking to you so far about this morning. I wonder how many he's been commissioning or recommissioning. But you only take up the commission of Jesus when you know that he has already served you. It's not to earn his approval or anybody else's. You serve Jesus because he first served us. So we take communion. It's a meal for believers, for those of us who've put our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you take it and it reminds you and it does you so much good as you reflect upon the servant-hearted nature of God himself on the cross. And then you remind yourself as to how God strode forth from an empty tomb alive, ready to serve more and build his church.